Revelation chapter 8, verses 6 through 12. When we are dealing with God, every time that we deal with God, every time that we interact with Him in His Word, we should never assume, and we should always ask, why? Why is this here? Why, Lord, are you telling us these things? What is it that you desire me to know from this text? And our texts from today are no different than any other text in the Bible. This is the breathed out, inerrant, infallible word of God. And what we are told of in our verses today, they are hard to understand, hard to comprehend. And we can, can be confused by them when, when, when reading them. And we're confused for two primary reasons. The first is that we've got a bad understanding of the nature of God. And the second reason is because we have a bad understanding of the importance of man. And our text from today will more than likely challenge you in how you view both man and God. And so for context, in order that you can get your bearings as we travel on this parking garage that is the book of Revelation, these trumpet judgments, they speak of the same time period that the first four scroll judgments do. So when you think of them, think of that time since Adam's sin, all those days from then until the second coming of Christ. In the sixth seal, when it's open, when that last saint dies, which is what then ushers in the seventh seal being opened, when all activity stops in heaven for a period of time at the sheer magnitude of what God is about to do when He pours out His final judgment on sinners and sin. Verse 1 of chapter 8 spoke of the opening of that last seal, the silence in heaven. And then verse 2 spoke of the seven angels who were commissioned with these with these seven judgments, given seven trumpets. And then verses 3 through 5 refocus back in on the importance of the church and speaking of the collected prayers of the saints being mixed with incense, incensors, and then being hurled to the earth, bringing about peals of thunder, sounds of flashes of lightning, and an earthquake, which is the exact same thing that happens when the sixth seal was opened. Those seven angels... Those seven trumpets, the first four of the trumpet judges, but they all line up and they all speak about the same time period as the first four seals on that scroll do. Our time. This time. Not some future time. And this is all from the hand of God, which then should cause us to ask why and more importantly, how, how do I act when God works in my life? Saints, what do you do when disaster strikes? How do you act? How do you react? Do you fall apart? Do you point your finger? Do you fall to the ground, kicking your feet, screaming and having a pity party because you know that you deserve better than this, whatever this is? This line of question is relevant to our text today. Because how you act and how you react to disease, to calamity, to strife, to affliction, how you react to these things in your life 
matters. And it should matter. Because everything that we have been told so far, all that is told to us in those first four seals being opened, all that happens when those first four trumpets are blown, what we have read today and have read to us, this is all from the hand of God. For His church. To His church. This is the meaning of Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. When he says, he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And these things that we're reading today, these are those things. And we, we are his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. They, these things are all from, the, from God and they are all happening for a reason. They have a desired effect and a desired outcome on people. They are from God. And at the same time, His saints, those that His Son died for, we know that they're safe in Him, seen under the altar. And this is why that question that I posed to you, how do you react or act when things don't seemingly go your way? This is an important question to ask. So let's quickly recap the form and the flow of the book of Revelation to date. God reveals the hero to us in chapter 1, Jesus Christ. He reveals the heroine, if you will, in chapters 2 and 3, the church. And then he reveals the drama that this account is centered on in chapters 4 and 5. The throne room of grace that is still polluted by sin. The sea is still, is still there. That scroll is still unsealed. Chapter 6 begins with the hero of our salvation. Opening the seals, revealing the effects of sin of Adam on this perfect creation that he had corrupted in his sin. Death. Disease, hatred, famine, disasters. And then chapter 7 is an interlude, focusing once again on the heroine, the bride of the hero, the bride who has gone through that great tribulation. The tribulation was brought, that was brought on by their own sin. But they had also suffered persecution through that tribulation because of the salvation that was made manifest within them because the lion of the tribe of Judah was worthy to take the scroll, because he had purchased with his blood for his father people from all nations, tribes, and peoples, and had made them a kingdom, priest to his father. That's what chapter 7 is all about. It shows us the bride, the saints, the true Israel of God, first as 144,000, Numbered saints prepared for battle as they go through the great tribulation. And then they're seen once again at the end of chapter 7. After the great tribulation. The same saints as the 144,000. The same saints that were seen under the altar of God in chapter 6. The same saints that were spoken about in chapters 2 and 3. And the same saints that are spoken of in verse 1 of chapter 1. Which tells us, that this is a revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his slaves the things which must soon happen. These end time saints, 
slaves gathered around the throne. These are the same saints as those that were to face persecution in chapters 2 and 3. And they made it. They're safe at home. But the reality is, is that they've always been safe at home. And chapter 8 once again opens with the silence in heaven as that seventh seal is opened. The final dis- destruction and then reconstruction begins. The trumpet judgments, they're just as symbolic as the seal judgments are. And they speak at that same time period, the same events. So you should be asking, why then are we given two sets of judgments like this? And the answer to that question is what makes that question that I posed to you earlier about how you deal with, how you react and and act when tragedy strikes important. You see, the seal judgments is the telling of the effects of sin and the judgment for sin in the natural realm since Adam. And its focus was in on the church, which is why it ends with us seeing the saints safe in the hands of Christ under that altar of God in chapter 6, verse 9, praying to their heavenly Father, asking for the final judgment to become on those earth dwellers. And what we're beginning to be told about in our verses today are speaking about those same events, but now they're being given to us with a different perspective in mind. They're not focusing in on the children of God. These focus in on the children of Satan. We'll see that clearly next week. But let's look at verses 6 and 7. And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. And the first sounded, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and they were thrown to the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. So again, as much as we want to think that there are literally seven angels with seven literal trumpets in heaven. This is all symbolic. And the same is true for the effects given to us in verse 7. It's all symbolic. When we read the Bible, when we interact with God, we need to do so with the mindset that we're not reading this, we're not gaining information, learning more about God, to learn how we can be more like God. We are to approach the word with wonder, with the mindset that wouldn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. We need to stop. Just stop for a second and think that statement through. Because this is what both of these judgments are about. We need to understand why we deal with tragedy in this life. Have you ever wondered why do we deal with tragedy here? Whose fault is it that there's any tragedy at all in our lives? You see, counting equality with God a thing to be grasped, that is the very essence of sin. This is where Adam failed and Jesus succeeded. Adam thought equality with God was a thing to be grasped. And logically thinking, in our Western human mindset, that makes sense. Why shouldn't we desire to be like God? I mean, He's God. 
He created us in his image. Doesn't that mean that we should count equality with thing, with him something to be grasped? God is good. He's mighty. He's holy. And this is where we are so off in our thinking about God and the importance of man. Because he is holy, we could never handle being like God. But we think that we can. We would like to take a shot at it at least. Adam sure did. And that's the entire point. We are created in his image. We are filled with this Holy Spirit. We are his children. But we are supposed to be so amazed at him. We are supposed to be in such awe of him that we understand that we could never be equal with him. And we never even desire to attempt to step outside of this exalted position that we are placed in as slaves to him. It's with this mindset, with this awe of God, this is how we are supposed to read the Bible in the book of Revelation. These trumpet judgments, they are symbolic and they are presented to us in the manner that they are to draw our minds back. We actually are supposed to, when we get to the end of the book of the Bible, we are supposed to have read the front of the book of the Bible. And it should cause us to think, to remember, to think back to something else. They're an allusion to the plagues of Egypt, the exodus of the nation Israel. Now, while that happened in real life, and while it happened to real people for real reasons, it also happened in order to be used as a representation of the telling of the end of the age. They were, if you will, merely a physical picture of a spiritual reality. So let me quickly recap the events bringing us to the plagues of Egypt. God had chosen men to be his own out of all creation. He had made covenant promises to them. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, making them into a nation within a nation, Israel inside of Egypt. And for a time period, they lived peaceably together. This is important in our thinking about our own lives. God chose these people. He made covenants with these people. And he brought them within Egypt. But then in a the process of time, God brought about a king that didn't remember Joseph. And they began taking advantage of the children of Israel until they became slaves to the Egyptians. The children of Israel, they were fine with exchanging their freedoms for comforts and amenities that were being provided to them until they came to a time when they were no longer free. And they finally cried out to God, finally cried out because of the compromise that they found themselves in, they said, Lord, send us a deliverer, which brought about that chosen man, Moses, being sent to Pharaoh with the command, let God's people go. And there's a fundamental question that God wants you to wrestle with here, a truth about him that he desires you to think through and then come to a right understanding about. 
Why would God ordain or allow His people to be subjected to slavery, to death, to torture? This is relevant in your life. This is relevant in my life. We're supposed to actually think these things through because it asks and it answers the same question in our lives. Why would a good and great God ordain or allow His people to suffer? In Exodus 9, we're told of the plague of hell, which, again, ended up being the seventh plague on the nation Egypt. Seven is the number that represents completion or perfection in the Bible, so it shouldn't surprise us that it's then that during the seventh plague, on the Egyptians, when it's being handed down, that we're told the why of the plagues of Egypt, and even the why of the trumpet judgments as well. In verse 14 of Exodus 9, we're told this, God said, for this time, I will send all my plagues against your heart and amongst your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. Words have meaning. I'm not sure whether or not you're aware of that or not, but words actually have meaning. They are supposed to mean something. God, in verse 14 of Exodus 9, gave a clear indication of what was going on in the judgments of Egypt. He's not sending his plagues against the land or the crops or the livestock. They had an effect on the land, the crops, and the livestock. But they were sent for a specific reason. He is sending them against the heart of the issue found within these people, the Egyptians, people that were created in his image, but people who were not his. And the heart of the issue was an issue of their heart. And it was this that he says that he was sending his plagues against. This is what he was attacking. This is what he's addressing in his plagues, in his devastation of the crops, the animals, and the natural realm. Creation hadn't done anything wrong. Creation isn't sinful. But it is the thing that is being used to address the issue of these people's hearts. You see, these people hated God. And he did these things. All these natural disasters and plagues happened for one reason. He did so, according to him, so that you may know that there was no one like me in all the earth. Saints, nothing has changed. This applies in our lives. Everything that happens in our life, God has sent your way. He has done it. And he has done it as an attack on your heart in order that you will know that there was no one like him in all the earth. He has given you a new heart. Yes, praise God for that. If you're his, this is reality. And this is the love of God made manifest to you through his Son, But his ways are not our ways, and his love is far better than ours. And even though he's given you a new heart, you still retain the sin 
the stain of sin in your heart. And this is why and how true blood-bought Christians can and do sin, sometimes grievously. And this is why we have to be conformed more into the image of His Son. And the truth is, we don't conform ourselves into His image. We should desire to, but it's in our selfish, sinful nature to please our flesh and not our souls. So God, in His love and His grace, brings trials, tribulations, and plagues into our lives, attacking our heart in order that we may know that there is no one like Him in all the earth. Having a tough time at work? God is attacking your heart in order that you will know that there is no one like him in all the earth. Having a tough time in your marriage. God is attacking your heart in order that you know that there is no one like him in all the earth. Having a tough time with your body. God is attacking your heart in order that you will know that there is no one like him in all the earth. It is in these things that He is causing you, making you, forcing you to do business with Him. He is causing you to wrestle through the reality of Him versus the reality of our sinful self. And He's going, He's doing these things for your good. But more importantly, He's doing them for His glory. And the Exodus 9.14 verse, that explains why the disasters are the reality of life. And then verses 15 through 16 of Exodus 9, there God reveals the motive behind all these things. He said this, For if by now I had sent forth my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, you would have been wiped out from the earth. Verse 16, But, indeed, for this reason... I have caused you to stand in order to show you my power and in order to recount my name through all the earth. Did you understand what God just said? You see, because we in our modern evangelical mindset, we we have tried to sanitize and emasculate God until he is nothing like the reality that he is. Think about who you think the Lord is and what love is like, what it means for Him to be gracious and merciful to you. We're comfortable saying that Jesus is my homeboy or wearing silly shirts that say things about Him that are demeaning. We tell people and even desire to think that Jesus would never send anyone to hell. If anybody goes to hell, they send themselves there. We we are confident that all people must have the same chance at the lottery of heaven, and they must be able to choose him. We're confident that Jesus is a gentleman, and he would never change a person without their permission. 
And that's blasphemous. All of it is. Listen again to what God just said about himself in verses 15 and 16 of Exodus 9. For if by now I had sent forth my hand and struck you with, and with you and your people with pestilence, you would have been wiped out from the earth. But indeed, for this reason, I have caused you to stand in order to show you my power and in order to recount my name throughout all the earth. I don't think you're getting it. In these verses, he's saying, I've already killed some people. And the only reason that you're not all dead is because I've restrained myself. God killed people. People died. And God killed them. And then he said that he not only held himself back, but that he did something that we think that is even worse in him killing poor, innocent people. He strengthened them in their disobedience. And he did so for one reason. The synopsis of those verses can be stated in one word. And that one word explains the seal judgments and the the trumpet judgments. The why of them. That word Glory. Glory is the reason for all suffering and for all disaster. God receives glory in suffering and in disaster. And we, we humans, we are offended by that thought. We think that is wrong. That is unkind. A good God would not bring about disaster into the lives of people, especially His children. But Christianity is based on truth, on logic, which is the Word. And the anti-God world hates logic and truth, which is why they fight against it, try to convince you that there are no absolute truths. Why a physical man can be a physical woman We, in our hearts, people hate God. And if you have been given the heart to love God, then you must understand that He must attack your heart in order for you to gain a revelation of Jesus Christ. We suffer for our good and His glory. All suffering is for these things. And we don't believe this is true. We want to believe that suffering isn't from God. God doesn't kill people. He he doesn't bring about hardship and pain. That's, That's not the God that I know or serve. And yet, if God is sovereign, and if saints suffer... Do you suffer? Have you suffered? So then maybe God's not sovereign. Except we have Revelation 4.11 that tells us, Worthy are you, O Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will they have existed and were created. 
So he's sovereign. So have you ever suffered? What then do we do with the word that's given to us in Romans 8, verses 28 through 30? We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Because those who he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed into the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. And our good is spoken in the midst of those verses. Our good is us being conformed into the image of his Son through those things that we are told are working together for our good. And since both of these things are true, since God is sovereign and we do suffer, we need to be honest and realize that our suffering is from the hand of God. And this isn't new. Turn with me to the book of Job, chapter 1. Remember that what is recorded for us in the book of Job, although that it's recorded as happening centuries ago, it's still part of the seal and the trumpet judgments. It happened after the sin of Adam and before the second coming of Christ. It's our time. So most of us know this account well enough. Job, God said Job was upright and righteous. And God was in heaven. And one day Satan was walking past him. And God threw him under the bus. Taunted Satan with this man, this righteous man, Job. Allowing Satan to attack him and all that he had, which is exactly what he did. Listen to verses 13 through 21. Because this happened, saints, This is truth. These were people. Verses 13 through 21 of Job 1. Now it happened that on the day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in the house of their brother, the firstborn, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabians fell upon them and took them. They also struck down the young men with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. People died, and God killed them. While this one was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the young men and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. People died, and God killed them. And while this one was still speaking, another also came and said, The Chaldeans set up three companies and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the young men with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Saints, people died, and God killed them. And while this one was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and your daughters, parents think about this. Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in the house of their brother, the firstborn. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and touched the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they died. 
and I alone have escaped to tell you. His kids died, and God killed them. And then Job arose and tore his robe, shaved his head, and he fell to the ground, and he worshiped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. Yahweh gave, Yahweh has taken away. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. These things happened to Job. And they even happened for Job. But in reality, at that moment, these things happened for a much greater important reason. Because when Job said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return, Yahweh gave and Yahweh has taken away, blessed be the name of Yahweh, the host of heaven, those that surround the throne of God, when they heard this man say these things, they shouted, praise the God of Job, who is worthy of all praise and honor because he purchased for his father with his blood people from all tribes, tongues, and peoples, and nations, and has made them to be a kingdom, priest to his father forevermore. But Satan was there, and Satan did not. He does not think of God in this manner. He remains in that same place as those Egyptians are in, the ones that are spoken of back in verse 16 of chapter 9, when God said, For indeed, for this reason, I have caused you to stand in order to show you my power and in order to recount my name throughout all the earth. And even when the second time that God throws Job under the bus and throws in the face of Satan, the faith that this man has, the faith that is his because God has given it to him, the faith that Satan disdains, what is it that God has given you? And how important is your faith? God then allows Satan to attack the very being of Job causing him tremendous, long-lasting pain. And even then, in faith, through tears and pain, Job still prayed, Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept calamity? Job 2.10 And all of creation erupted in praise to the God of Job, crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God who was and who was and who will be. Saints, the glory of God, this is why we are saved and this is why we are here. This is why we are given these events. This is why all things happen. And how you react to tragedy to trials, to tribulations that come your way from the hand of God. Why it matters how you react. Because you will either in that moment be glorifying God and glorying in God who is worthy of all praise and honor because he purchased for his Father with his blood people, you from all tribes, tongues, and peoples, and made them to be a kingdom, priest to his Father forevermore. Or your heart will just remain hard. 
So what is the glory of God? We are told the why in gen- of general creation and of glory in Romans 1, 20 and 21. There we read, For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, both His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly understood, or clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they're without excuse. For even though they did not go know God, they did not, I'm sorry, even though they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish heart was darkened. That's the general reason for the creation of all things. But there is a more specific reason for creation, one that we are supposed to understand, one that we're supposed to really truly know, one that is supposed to explain the why of our suffering in this life. We're told in Isaiah 43, 4, since you are precious in my sight, and he's speaking of you, dear saint, since you are precious in my sight, since you are honored and I love you, I will give other men in your place and other peoples in exchange for your life. And then in verse 7, everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. The reason it's hinted at further in chapter 49 of Isaiah. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will show forth my beautiful glory. How is this glory seen in you? We desire to think that it's seen in us doing works, being pleasant. A reason further pointed out in chapter 61 of Isaiah, the Spirit of Lord Yahweh is upon me because Yahweh has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up their brokenhearted, to proclaim release to captives and the freedom of prisoners. And again, this is speaking of Christ. But this is also my privilege today. I get to bring you the good news. And yes, that's what I'm sharing with you now, the good news. God has saved you from his wrath. The seal and the trumpet judgments, they are not his wrath. They are the effects of our sin. This is what we get to do when we share God, the truth of God with each other and with other saints. We are given the privilege of knowing God through our affliction when we get to do that which verses 1 through 4 of Isaiah tells us. We get to proclaim the favorable year of Yahweh and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all those who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a headdress instead of ashes. Do you understand that we as saints, we suffer? We need our brothers and our sisters around us to point us to the reality of Christ and what we've been given in Him, that this world is not our home, that we will suffer here, and God is not being unfair in doing that. He's conforming you into the image of His Son. And He brings His saints around you, your brothers and His sisters, so that you can point them to Christ. Then they'll have the oil of rejoicing instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. 
So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of Yahweh, that he may show forth his beautiful glory. Verses 1 through 4. This is how God is glorified in his suffering. But in the midst of their suffering, they pray in faith to God, praising him for revealing himself to them and bringing them eternally home in his son. And this is how much our salvation is supposed to matter. We're supposed to understand how he is glorified. This happens in him choosing, redeeming, strengthening, comforting people into the image of his precious son. Saints, do you not understand that we go through the same things that the earth dwellers do? The same exact thing. But there's a major difference. You are supposed to understand and know what that difference is. Because that difference is what makes the difference. This is their home. And we, we are home. We have been given home. And we're headed home by the power of home. The sealed judgments, they focused in on the people of God, the suffering that they endured during that time until the final end, enduring the disasters that occurred in their life, and at the same time, enduring the persecution of the earth dwellers because they are not of this world, and the earth dwellers are. We need to get a clear understanding of what salvation is and what it does. Because when we read these judgments... We can think that what they do, we can, we can actually start thinking wrongly about humanity. So we've already been shown the importance of the church and the salvation, how important it is to God. He gave his all in, in order to save us. And our suffering, us going through the same events that the earth dwellers do, Knowing, uh, knowing that he gave us his all in order to save us from his wrath, which he poured out on his son and not us, this should make a difference. And the events that are given to us in these trumpet judgments, they're all symbolic. We know that they're symbolic because of simple things like the word used in verses 8 through 10. The word that comes up alongside of it over and again. Like. Here are verses 8 through 12. The second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the creatures which were in the sea, those which had, di- which had life, died. And a third of the ships were destroyed, and a third angel sounded, and a great star from the he- fell from heaven, burning like a torch. And it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. And the name of the star is called Wormwood. And the third of the waters became Wormwood. And many men died from the waters because they were made bitter. And the fourth angel sounded. And a third of the sun and a third of the moon and a third of the stars were struck so that a third of them would be darkened and the day would not shine for a third of it and the night in the same way. 
We know this is all symbolic because you can't destroy a third of the sea without destroying all life on the planet. Verses 8 through 12 are the first four trumpet judgments, and they mirror the plagues of Egypt. They are the retelling of the same events of the first final or the first four seal judgments, and they're all symbolic. But just as the plagues of Egypt were cumulative in their attacks and effects, so are the judgments of the trumpets. Just as the plagues of Egypt were judgments on the false gods of the Egyptians, the very things that they placed their trust and their hope in, so too the judgments of God in these trumpets, these judgments are against the very things that humans, the earth dwellers, place their faith in. Plagues of the Exodus were all attacks on the false gods of the Egyptians. Didn't know if you knew that or not, but they were. And the trumpet judgments are all attacks on the false gods of all humanity. Just think Greta Stromberg and the emotions that the climate controversy is causing them. These all attack the home of these earth dwellers. The plagues of Egypt, while they were real, while they were actual events, they actually happened. They are given us in order to cause us to wonder, to wonder at the God that created all things and that has redeemed us, and then wonder at how we think about trials and tribulations in our life. How do you think about trials and tribulations in your life? Do you think about trials and tribulations in your life? Let me just point out one simple thing that just kind of shows you just how sinful we remain. How often when things happen to us, a policeman pulls us over because we got a taillight out, flat tire, we get turned down for a loan, get turned down for a house. How often do we actually look at people? They did that to us. instead of really acknowledging that that was from the hand of God for our good. You realize that Pharaoh, he refused to bow his knee no matter how much pain it cost him. He refused to submit and obey no matter how many of his false gods were made a mockery of. Pharaoh was an earth dweller. And his physical life, his physical pleasure, that was the most important thing to him. He hated God, and he worshipped the created realm rather than God. I began by asking you, ask yourself this, what do you do when disaster strikes? How do you act? How do you react? Do you fall apart? Do you point your finger? Do you fall on the ground kicking and screaming because you know that you deserve better than this? Saints, what are you living for? Where is your home? Because if this world, if this planet, if this economic and social system is your home, 
when those things happen, when those natural disasters happen, when you are threatened with earthquakes and fire and famine or anything else, you will fear. And you will try to do all you can to stop it and protect your God. You will want things just to go back to normal and not see God glorified through pain and suffering. Saints, we need to understand that God has been very gracious to humanity. All humanity. Never allow yourself to fall into the trap and the snare of the devil and thinking that God has ever been unfair with any human, no matter what they ever go through. Fair for every human would be the complete and utter deconstruction of them the second that they sinned and then being sent to an eternity in hell for their eternal soul. That's fair. Instead, God has remained gracious and merciful to all humanity and to all of his creation. Again, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. And even the worst human, the most foul of people, they love and they can be loved. And they enjoy the warmth of the sun on their skin and they enjoy the refreshment of water on a hot day. And these things, these simple things are gracious gifts from God. that no human deserves. But think what God has done for us. For us? He chose you from before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1.4. And what happened when he chose you? Listen to where you are now, how God sees you now. He chose you before the foundation of the world so that we would be holy and blameless before him. He did this in love by predestining us through his adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he graciously bestowed on us in the beloved. Well, what does that mean, though, David? What is it that we have been given? Verses 5 through 6 out of Ephesians 4. In him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our transgressions according to the riches of his grace, which he caused to abound to us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to the good pleasure of his pur- that purposed in him. For an administration of the fullness of the times, that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth, in him, verses 8 through 10. Saints, life is glorious and life is tragic and life is hard and life is good only because of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Saints, I would consider you or admonish you Consider your salvation 
especially when you think on how you think when hard things happen in your life. Because God knows. He's not unrealistic. He invented the word hard. He knows that hard is hard. But hard is good too. So when we go through hard, when God attacks our hearts, the sinfulness that still remains in our hearts, it happens because he's answering our prayer and giving us a greater revelation of Jesus Christ as we are conformed more into his image. And we, through our trials, through our tribulations, through our pain, through our suffering, we demonstrate that he is worthy. As we cling to their only hope that we have in life and death, Jesus Christ. Since we all go through hard things. We all deal with disappointments in our life. And I would admonish you, I would beg you, Christ at the forefront of your mind so that you understand that everything that happens to you in this life is from his gracious hand for your good. And when you do, oh, he will be glorified. And you, you will be given a, a greater revelation of your Savior. Let's pray.